book of Exodus, chapter 20. As uh, has been mentioned already this morning, we are in a series of messages from the Ten Commandments. And it's very important, I want to go back to something we said last week, it's very important to remember uh, to approach these commandments rightly. Um, that they don't establish our relationship with God, but we said last week they express our, a relationship with God. God did not come to Israel in Egypt and say, if you will keep my commandments, then I will redeem you, I will rescue you, I will set you free from bondage and slavery and captivity. Rather, he came into Egypt and he claimed them for himself, he brought them out of slavery, and he let, was leading them toward the land of promise, and he said, because I have done this, I brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the bondage and slavery and captivity, then this is how you would live in the freedom that I've already provided for you. Right? So they don't establish our relationship with God. They're not a ladder where we climb up the rungs of the commandments to reach God and acceptance with Him. But they are a pathway that God has set us upon to live in freedom and enjoy what He has provided and purchased for us. So we want to continue to come back to that and come to these commandments rightly. And this morning we come to the very first commandment uh, that we find in Exodus chapter 20. And so we'll read the whole list of commandments each week together. And so we'll start in Exodus chapter 20 verse 1 where we were reminded of in the preamble. It says this, And God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So we come to the first commandment this morning, whenever God says to the people of Israel right out of the gate, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. And this past week we had an opportunity to go to Broken Bow, Oklahoma, uh, to the Beaver's Bend area on spring break. My mom and dad, my brother and his wife, and their two kids, uh, all a, 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 kind of... A, came to rest in a little cabin there in the Broken Bow area, and we spent four days together. And over the course of those four days, we had a chance to do some hiking, did a little bit of fishing, uh, ate some good food. But one of the things that my brother and I, here I am, a 40-something-year-old man, and my brother in his late 30s, we had a very epic Nerf gun battle. 
Okay, and so in the cabin, we kind of got cooped up one day because of the rain that was outside. And the cabin had three levels on it. It had a loft, and it had a main floor, and it had a kind of a basement area. And there were beds and bathrooms and laundry in the basement. On the main floor was the kitchen and the living room, another bedroom and bathroom. And the loft was just a single bed up there. And so during, uh, to start the, the epic Nerf gun war of 2019, I ascended to the high ground, right? That's all, all, you always want the high ground, right? Whenever it comes time for battle. And so I had a 40-round Nerf gun, 40 rounds. He only had about 12. I don't know why he didn't find one that had more, but he didn't. He had a 40-round Nerf gun and a bag of bullets that my son had brought, a gallon-sized Ziploc bag, in addition to the 40 that were already in the gun. So I had him outgunned, and I had the high ground. And so we battled for close to 45 minutes. I told you it was epic, okay? And over the course of these 45 minutes, as we fought, my, my brother did some despicable things. He hid behind my mother, who was sitting on the couch, in order to keep me from shooting him. And while he hid behind my mother, he mocked me, talking about how noble of a son I was, because I wouldn't shoot him as he tried to hide behind my mother. But over the course of that time as well, his daughter, my niece, right, who is six years old, uh, she got involved in the action as well. So she had her gun, and she was my bullet retriever. I don't know why. Here's her father, who literally, who literally, right, gave her life, right? And so he has nurtured her and cared for her and provided for her and protected her her six years of life. She lives in a home with him. She shares meals with him, right? He changed her dirty diapers. And yet she, every time that I would shoot and be em empty my rounds and begin to reload from the bag of ammunition that I had, she would go retrieve as many bullets as she could and bring them back to me. She's a good kid, man. She's a, she's a great niece. And so I like to think that I kind of came out of the Nerf gun battle victorious, but it was all, much of it, it was to her credit. Right? Because her, her loyalties were divided. Right? Because here's her father who had, again, given, given her life and given her protection and provided for her. And yet, when the time came to choose whom she would serve, she sided with her uncle. Somebody she sees a few times a year rather than the man that she sees every single day. But loyalty was divided. You know what, church? Even as Christians, ours are as well. Our loyalties are divided. We, at times, are like a six-year-old child. And the God who is our Father, who has given us life and freedom, who's, who, in whom we live and move and have our being, He's our Creator, He's our Redeemer, He's saved us from Satan's sin and death. And yet there are times in which our hearts flee to other gods. They flee to idols. And here at the very outset of the commandments, God says, what is for my greatest glory and for your highest good, for your health and wholeness, for you to flourish and live a full life, 
is for you to set yourself apart, have no gods before me, have no gods beside me, and give your exclusive allegiance and exclusive loyalty to me and me alone. That's what he says at the very outset of the commandments. And when God coming to say this in the context of the Ten Commandments, speaking to His people Israel, it teaches us a couple of things. First of all, it teaches us this. It teaches us that tribal gods are not true gods. They are not true gods. Even though our loyalties are divided to these tribal gods, they are not true gods. See, Israel lived in a day and an age where every tribe and every nation had their own god or their own gods, plural. Right? They had the gods and goddesses of harvest and fertility. And so if you wanted your crops to come in strong and you wanted to have a, a, a full family, you would worship and bring offerings and sacrifices to the gods of fertility and agriculture. You had the gods of war and peace. If you wanted success and victory in battle, you would bring offerings and sacrifices to those gods. You had the gods of commerce and the gods of protection. And whatever whatever area of life or aspect of life that you wanted success in, that you wanted blessing in, or you wanted refuge in, you would go to that God or that goddess's temple and you would bring offerings and you would worship that God. They had these tribal gods. And into a culture filled with this pantheon of tribal gods and goddesses, the Lord says, these are not true gods. I alone deserve your exclusive loyalty. It says it this way in Psalm 135, verses 15 to 18. The psalmist writes, he says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. He says, these gods that are made by human hands, they have mouths and they have eyes and they have ears, but they cannot see, they cannot hear, they do not speak. There's no breath in their lungs. And everyone who fashions them and everyone who puts their faith in them becomes like them. You know what that means? These idols are lifeless. And whenever you give yourself to them, you forfeit life. You forfeit flourishing and fullness and the wholeness of worshiping the Lord your God. You become lifeless. Right? And so these tribal gods, they are not true gods. However, in Israel's history, she continued to turn aside over and over and over again to the gods of the nations. Right? As, even as Brian, I think, prayed earlier in citing John Calvin, Calvin said this, he said, listen, our hearts, the human heart, is an idol factory. You know what that means? It can take anything or anyone and make it into an idol. Make it into a tribal God, a false God that we would look to and worship. This was Israel's experience. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, toward the end of Moses' farewell sermon, this is what he says he knows about Israel. He says, I'm about to die. God's about to take me off of the scene. And this is what he says as he concludes his words to Israel in Deuteronomy 31. He says, For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? 
assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and of your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him to anger through the work of your hands. So you will take gold and you will take silver and you will take wood and you will fashion and form for yourself idols in which you would place your faith. And God says, I will hand you over to that. But then in Deuteronomy 32, in the song of Moses, which is somewhat prophetic as he sings about what Israel's future would be like in the land, listen to what he says. In verse 32, verse, chapter 32, verse 16, he says, They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. This would be true in Israel's experience time and time and time and time again throughout her history, that she would forsake the true God for the tribal gods. And she would form gods for herself in whom she would place her faith. But listen, this is not only true in Israel's experience, but it's true in ours as well. It's true in ours as well. Something's going on out there. Listen, you and I, just like Israel, we have broken cisterns and unstable rocks in our lives. All right? See, one of the ways you can begin to recognize your idols is to begin to take stock and evaluation in your life of what it is that you look to for blessing and where it is that you run to in distress. What do you look to for blessing and where do you run in distress? In fact, in his preface to his shorter catechism, or in, 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 in Martin Luther's shorter catechism under the first commandment, he says, what is it to have a God? We're to have no other gods but this God. What is it to have a God? He says, to have a God is to look to something or someone for blessing or to run to something or someone in distress. And so where do you look for good? Where do you look for significance? Where do you look for security? And when those things are threatened in your life, where do you run to to find refuge? That is what it means to have a God. To have, and for many of us in our lives, we have broken cisterns and unstable rocks. See, God says, I want to be your source of confidence. I want to be your source of security, your source of meaning, the one you look to and rejoice in for blessing in life. And so when all is right in life, right? When the, when the sun is shining and the birds are singing, when the water is calm and the winds are still, Who do you rejoice in? God says, I want to be the one in whom you rejoice. No one and nothing else. And yet throughout Israel's history and ours as well, you see that they continue to hewn for themselves broken cisterns. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, we're told that the idols with which we are intoxicated and we give ourselves to, they're like broken cisterns in our lives. In Jeremiah 2, 13, God says, For my people, they've committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
In other words, the places that are looking for refreshment in life and blessing in life and good in life, to be sustained in life, to have security and significance and satisfaction in life. He says they've dug for themselves their own wells, their own cisterns, but they're cracked and broken. And so as soon as they fill up and you believe you're going to be satisfied by them, all of a sudden the water just drains out and disappears from before your eyes and you're left thirsting for more. Saying, satisfy, satisfy, and it doesn't because it just leaks. And yet time and time again, God says, I want to be the source of your everlasting joy and pleasure. In fact, the psalmist declares this to be the case in Psalm 42 when he says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He says, in you is the only place I'm able to be satisfied, secure, significant, have blessing and good. All of it comes from you. And so I thirst for you. I won't forsake you for broken cisterns that can't hold water, but like a deer pants for streams, I'm going to come to you the fountain of all living waters. Where do you look for blessing? Where do you look for good? What are your sources of significance in life? On the flip side, look at your places of refuge. Where do you go when things get rocky? God says, I want to be the one to whom you flee and find refuge during your distress. See, when the world around you is collapsing and life begins to unravel, like somebody took that loose thread hanging under your sleeve and pulled on it, and all of a sudden the whole sleeve comes unraveled, instead of taking the scissors and just cutting it, right? But they pull, when your life begins to unravel like that, where do you run to? To what do you flee? Where do you look for refuge? What rock do you seek to stand upon? See, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, we read about how God would rise up and vindicate His people by showing the worthlessness of the tribal gods as sources of protection. Listen, again, in Moses, as he continues that farewell sermon, that song of Moses, he says this, For the Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants. When He sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free, then He will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge. Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I am He, and there is no God beside me. He says, where's their rock of refuge? The place that they ran for shelter in their distress. The place that they looked to for protection. The place that they went whenever life got hard. He says, who, when they brought sacrifices, who ate that meat? When they poured out the wine, who soaked that up? He says, let them run there whenever I come to vindicate my people. And they will find that their tribal gods were worthless. They're worthless sources of security and protection. And over and over again, the Psalms would declare this as well. The psalmist says in Psalm 18, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. For who is God, Psalm 1831, but the Lord? And who is a rock? Except our God. God says, 
Give me your exclusive loyalty because I am the only one who can be your shield and protection. I am the only one who can be your rock and source of refuge. I am the only one upon whom you could stand and not be shaken whenever life gets rocky. And he says, I am the only one who can fully satisfy you because I am the, I am the fountain of living waters. So stop digging for yourselves wells and cisterns that will leak and never fully satisfied. But we all have broken cisterns and we all have unstable rocks in our lives. How do you recognize them? This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. How do you recognize these idols in your life? These tribal gods. Because listen, although we are in modern America, there are still tribal gods that litter the landscape of our nation and even our hearts. So how do we identify them? Listen, while the idols in Israel's day were often physical in nature, so they made statues of wood and stone and rock and layered them in gold and silver, oftentimes the idols in our day, they're, sometimes they're physical in nature, but many times, listen, they are spiritual and psychological in nature. Right? And so here's, before we get into what some of them are, I want to encourage you, one way to begin to identify them is to take note of your objections to the Word as it is taught and preached. Because your objections to the Word as it's proclaimed, your objections to the Word as it's taught, whenever you receive counsel from someone, the things that you disagree with from the Scriptures often are running counter to a tribal God in your life to whom you've submitted yourself. The things that you take objection to whenever you just outrightly, blanketly dismiss them as foolishness, right? That won't work. Whenever the Bible's being proclaimed, whenever it's being taught, when the Word's going forth, the things that you object to oftentimes give rise of evidence that there might be an idol lurking under the surface. And listen, you and I, and every human heart, they have what, what, what other pastors and preachers, listen, I've heard it multiple places. I don't remember where the first place that I heard it was, but it's not original with me, this language. They have surface idols and they have source idols. They have surface and source idols. Let's talk about a few surface idols. Here's a, an example of a surface idol for you. It might be body image. Body image. It can be a surface idol. Listen, what this is, body image, is the belief that my life will have meaning, I will have value, I will be significant and secure if I have a certain desirable body image. Right? Now listen, let me just be real clear. There's a difference between being healthy and trying to take care of your body that God has given you as one and only that you're going to have and worshiping at the altar of your own graven image at the gym or the salon. There's a difference between those two things. There's a difference between being well-kept and worshiping your own body image. Tim Keller, I think in his book, Counterfeit God, says it this way. He says, physical beauty is a pleasant thing. I think we would all agree with that, right? It's a pleasant thing. But if you deify it, if you make it the most important thing in a person's life or a culture's life, then you have Aphrodite, not just beauty. You have people and an entire culture constantly agonizing over appearance, spending an inordinate amount of time and money on it, and foolishly evaluating character on the basis of it. Right? You have 
a culture that looks upon the outward appearance while the Lord is looking at the heart, evaluating character. We think that because somebody's well-kept and well-put together, then they must be qualified for whatever position we're trying to fill. Right? And that's, that's how, one of the ways you know that perhaps body image has become an idol in your life, something that you're looking to for meaning and significance. Another one might be leisure, recreation. And we could talk about this for a long time this morning, right? Particularly within the subculture that we live in. It's the belief that your life will have meaning and that you will have value, be significant and secure if you're able to fully give yourself to leisure, travel, and hobbies, right? That you can, you have enough discretionary income, discretionary time to just do whatever you would like to do, right? To travel and see the world, right? Now listen, let me be very clear. It's not wrong to travel. It's not wrong to take a vacation. But listen, if you find yourself on vacation, on Airbnb, constantly looking for the next place that you're going to take a vacation, then you might have an idol of leisure and recreation in your life. Because you can't enjoy the moment that you're in, but you're always planning for the next one. Because you're not satisfied in this one, because you know, you know what? It's a broken cistern. It just keeps leaking. You might have the idol of performance in your life. Of performance or success. It's the belief that your life will have meaning, that you will have value, that you will be significant and secure, that you will be blessed if you're able to excel in, fill in the blank, exceed others in the way that you fill in the blank, or become an expert in, fill in the blank. So I can excel, exceed, and become an expert in this. It might be in your vocation. It might be in your academic career if you're a student. Perhaps it's in the way that you parent. And so you look in the mirror as a mother or as a father and you say, if I can just be this expert mom, this excellent mom, this expert dad, this excellent dad, then I will have meaning, my life will have significance, and I will be secure. Or perhaps it's in your hobbies or your interests. Or it's in the way that you relate to your spouse. That if I can just excel in this area, I can exceed the way other people, I can exceed all the other wives in here in the way that I wife. Or the way that I husband. Right? It's performance. It's constantly nagging at you to do better, do more. Or perhaps it's fantasy. This is the belief that your life will have meaning, you'll have value, you'll be significant and secure, your life will be blessed if you're able to escape reality and live in fantasy. And this, this expresses itself in a variety of ways in our lives. It expresses itself through Netflix and Hulu. Right? So I can just binge watch every episode of my favorite series to escape the reality in which I find myself. I can shut out reality and binge watch this. Or perhaps it expresses itself through certain images that you might peruse the internet looking for to fantasize in your mind about someone that, that you would like to be with. Or perhaps it expresses itself through video games. Some of you look at me a little funny, but listen. Nearly 50% of Americans play at least three hours of, of video games 
per week. And the average age of a game player in the United States is a 35-year-old man. Right? What that tells me is this. Is there's, listen, there are, there, there are many men who are far too busy conquering fake lands, winning fake championships, right? executing fake missions to enter into real relationships and deal with real life around them. And I think a part of that dynamic is this escape to fantasy because we don't want to deal with reality. It could be the idol of materialism. It's a belief that my life will have meaning and I will have value. I'll be significant and secure and blessed if I can purchase certain possessions. Listen, this is why some people are house poor. Let's just keep it real, right? It's why some people are house poor. It's why some people are swimming in credit card debt. Listen, this is not... This is not just poor money management. This is worship. This is worship. It's a tribal God that we're bowing down to and looking for significance from. These are all perhaps surface idols in our lives. What about some source idols? See, source idols are those things that are under the surface of your life that are feeding the surface idols. Right? There are things that you may not see readily in life, but they're there. Uh, give me, give me, let me give you three examples of some, some source idols. The first source idol might be the idol of comfort. The idol of comfort. This is the belief that your life will have meaning, you will have value, will be significant and secure and blessed if you're able to minimize every pressure point in your life and to live comfortably. There's no risk that you ever take in life because you are worshiping comfort see life for you only has meaning you only have significance and security if you're able to have a particular experience or quality of life you want your privacy you don't want any prying eyes on anything that you might be doing to have to give an explanation for because you don't want to explain anything to anyone Right? You, you strive for a lack of stress and freedom and what you're willing to pay for that with is a lack of productivity. You don't give yourself to anything. You don't give yourself to anyone. The greatest nightmare for those with the idol of comfort is stress and demands. Stress and demands. Others in your life often feel hurt by you because laziness always has collateral damage that is associated with it. Always. And you may be constantly bored because you're not designed to sit around and do nothing. See, the, perhaps, perhaps the surface idol that's bred from the source idol of comfort are things like leisure and recreation giving yourself to nothing but your self-interest, right? Because you see other people or other opportunities or experiences as obstacles to your comfort because real relationships take work and being involved in them is uncomfortable and might mean that you would be exposed and have to give an account. Another source idol is the idol of approval. The idol of approval. Right? It's the belief that your life will be significant, secure, and satisfying. You'll have value if you are loved and respected by a particular person or group of people. Or group of people. 
right? And so what you're seeking more than anything is not necessarily lack of stress or freedom, but what you're seeking more than anything is affirmation in relationships. And your life has no meaning apart from them. And the price you're willing to pay for that is your own independence. You can't think for yourself. You can't have your own opinions because other people might reject you. And that's your greatest fear, your greatest nightmare is to be rejected by others. As a result, other people oftentimes feel smothered by you in relationships. And, and, and your greatest problem emotion is cowardice. Because you'll never cross anyone. You'll never speak the truth in love. You'll never confront or correct. Because what you want most out of life is affirmation and relationships and anything that puts those at risk, you're willing to sacrifice. Which is, again, you're sacrificing real relationships. Third, the source idol of control. Now this is the belief that you will be significant, secure, and satisfied. That your life will have meaning, right? If you always have the advantage and you're always in the driver's seat of circumstances and relationships. You're always in control. You're seeking to control yourself and to control others with self-discipline and very rigid boundaries that you set in place in your life. Right? And the, the, the idol of control, for those with the idol of control, their greatest nightmare is uncertainty. I don't know how things are going to unfold. I don't, if I take this risk, what's going to happen? Right? That I'm only willing to wade into the waters where I can see the bottom. Right? I can see what I'm about to step on. I'm not willing to take risks. The price that you pay for that oftentimes is spontaneity. Because everything's got to be planned. Everything's got to be structured. Everything's got to have its place. And loneliness. Because the more that you try to control others, the more you push others away from you. Right? Others feel condemned because oftentimes those with the idol of control, what continually comes out of their mouth are things like, why can't you just? Ever find yourself saying that? Or if you want it done right, I've I got to do it myself. I can't delegate anything because it won't be done appropriately because I have these rigid standards that it has to measure up to. And so they end up micromanaging every area of their life and oftentimes every area of their spouse's life, their friend's lives, their children's lives. And their problem emotion is worry and anxiety. Worry and anxiety. Because what if it doesn't? So you have surface idols and source idols. And listen, let me just say that for some of us, one of the ways to more clearly see those idols at work in our lives is through the context of a local assembly, a body of believers that God has given us because sometimes they will see things in you before you ever see them in yourself. But the challenge here is having the humility to receive what they bring to you and to go before the Lord in prayer and weigh that out and then seek counsel from others that you trust in the in, in seeing and discerning what those idols might be. But whenever you begin to, they begin to come to the, to the surface of your life, what do you do about them? Right? What do you do about them? Let me give you two things this morning as we close. First of all, first of all, you and I need to learn, some of you have heard me say this before, you need to learn to mock your idols. 
You need to learn to mock your idols. You see, in the Old Testament, the prophets of Israel, they used to mock the little g gods of the surrounding nations. They would mock them, right? Think about the prophet Elijah on the Mount, Mount Carmel as he is there with the 450 prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18, right? He looks at the people of Israel. They're all gathered there on the mountain. He looks at the people and he says, listen, how long, I love the way he says it, how long will you go limping between these two options? Right? Between the gods of the other nations and the Lord. If the Lord is God, then worship Him. Right? But as it is, you're limping and dragging yourself between these two options. And whenever He says that to the people, notice how they, if you look at the text, this is how they respond. A hush falls over the crowd. They are dead silent. No one says anything. So Elijah says, okay, let's put this to the test. All right? He says, bring me two bulls, let's build two altars, and we're going to dig moats around the altar, and we're going we're to pour water in there, and we're going to, we're, we're gonna, you, 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 the prophets of Baal, they will call upon their gods from morning until noon. And, and then I will call upon the Lord, and whoever, whichever God brings down fire from the heavens and consumes the offering that's on the altar, that is the true God whom is deserving of your worship, whom is deserving of your allegiance and your loyalty. So they set everything up. And the prophets of Baal, they begin to do their rituals. They dance around the altar, right? They're, in fact, by the end of the time allotted to them, they're cutting themselves, waiting for their gods to respond. And then Elijah steps in. Or, and what does he say? Maybe you need to speak a little bit louder. Maybe they can't hear you. They're thinking really, they're musing. They're thinking really hard about something right now, right? They're distracted. They can only focus on one thing at a time. And he says, oh, maybe, it's, maybe they're not musing. Maybe they're traveling. They're on vacation, right? Maybe they're sitting right, on, the, on, the, on the Mediterranean coast somewhere, sipping little drinks out of umbrellas. So maybe you need to get them back on a plane and get them back here so they can respond to your cries, right? Or maybe, maybe they had a long night and they're just asleep. You need to wake them up. Or, or maybe they're on the toilet. That's literally, maybe they're relieving themselves, right? Maybe they're indisposed at the moment. Right? What is he doing? He's mocking the gods of the other nations. And so their time comes to an end and Elijah says, listen, go get more water. Keep pouring it on. Keep pouring it on. Keep pouring it on. And then he cries out to the Lord. And what happens? The Lord sends fire down from heaven that, 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 that consumes the offering and licks, licks up every drop of water that surrounds the altar. So what Elijah does is something that we need to learn to do is to mock our idols. How do you do that? Listen, if your idol is leisure, if your idol is performance, if your idol is material possessions, if your idol is promotions and positions, if your idol is body image, if, it's, if your idol is body image, you look in the mirror. You look in the mirror and you say, listen, beauty is a good gift, but it is a terrible God. If your idol is materialism, you go into the closet, ladies, right? And you look at all of your shoes and all of your clothes and you say, these are a good gift, but they are a terrible God. You are a horrible God. If your idol is materialism, men, you go into the garage and you look at all your tools and your toys and you say, these things are wonderful gifts, but they are horrible gods. If your idol is leisure, then as you go into a vacation or time away, you say, this is a great gift, but it's a 
terrible God. It is not where I get my meaning. It's not where I get my significance. It's not where I find satisfaction and security in life. Right? It doesn't mean that you don't enjoy God's good gifts. It's that you look at them and you enjoy them for what they are. And whenever you begin to sense that they're gaining too much of a foothold in your life and you're building too much of your life upon them, and you look them in the face and you say, you're a good gift and a terrible God. You need to learn to mock your gods. Right? You need to pull up Bank of America, Chase Bank, Fidelity, and you look at all those zeros or the lack thereof behind the numbers in your bank account and you say, you are a good gift, but you are a terrible God. And my life, I I love the way that on the very heels of the preamble, God says, I'm the God who brought you out of slavery. Now, have no gods before me because when you have gods before me, you're not able to walk in freedom, but you put yourself back in bondage to all these other little G-gods in your life. So mock your idols, but then finally, finally, let me appeal to you this morning to make Jesus your God. To make Jesus your God. See, Jesus, Jesus, when you flip the page of the New Testament, what you find, what you find is that Jesus is the only one who ever loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus was the only one who ever showed exclusive loyalty and allegiance, love and affection to God his Father, even at great cost to himself. Remember there as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane? And he's praying and he's sweating drops of blood and he's crying out to the Father, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. He said, but nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will come to pass. And so Jesus is saying, listen God, I will be loyal to you, I will be Exclusive with you. I will not run around on you as my father. I will not have divided loyalties, but I will look to you and you alone. Even though you slay me, as Job says, yet I will trust you. Jesus is the one who fulfills that statement fully and finally. And because he fulfills that statement fully and finally, that he kept the law perfectly, that he never committed adultery on his one true father, his only God. He never ran around on him, but he was exclusive to him. Listen, because he has kept it fully, and he went to the cross and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That I would trust you to the point of death, even though you turned your face from me, I continue to cling to you. I continue to look to you. And because of Jesus' life and because of Jesus' death, then all of us who are in Christ this morning, we are counted not as lawbreakers, but as law keepers. As law keepers. And so the good news is, is that even though, even though we have broken cisterns in our lives and we have unstable rocks, right? Jesus never drank from a leaky well. And he never stood on an unstable rock. And he did so because he loved the Father with all of his heart, soul, and mind and strength. And he did so because he loved his neighbor, you and I, as himself. 
And listen, because of that, Jesus is better than any other God that you could give your allegiance and your loyalty to. You know why? Because every other God that you give your loyalty to, you will find ultimately to be not be able to provide what they promise. They will not be able to give you the significance, the satisfaction, and the security they promise. They can't provide it. But Jesus, He and He alone can provide it for you. And listen, whenever you fail these other gods, listen, whenever you fail your career, your career will not forgive you. Whenever you fail, whenever you fail your body image, your body image will will curse you every day that you look in the mirror. Whenever you fail this God of materialism, that every time you look at the house in which you live and the car that you drive, it will not forgive you. But whenever you fail this God who went to the cross for you, whenever you fail him, he stands with arms wide open, ready to receive, ready to forgive, and ready to restore. And because he's the only God who will satisfy and the only God who will forgive, he is better than all gods. So listen, church, don't give yourself to a tribal God. Give yourself to the true God. Give your exclusive loyalty to him and find in him and him alone the freedom that your heart was made to enjoy. Let's pray. Father, today, we acknowledge, we acknowledge that our hearts are indeed factories that produce idols out of anything and anyone. That our hearts are like a six-year-old little girl with divided loyalties Who would, who, would, who would side with someone who has not given them life, someone whom has not nurtured them, someone who has not provided for them, someone who has not protected them, someone who has not cared for them in the way that you have. And Father, because of it, we suffer We suffer. Father, help us to see that if we would give ourselves to the keeping of this one command, that all the other nine would fall into place in our life. That we would not covet. That we would not overwork. That we would Sabbath. We would feel no need to rob anyone of anything. That we'd be sexually pure in life. In whole. That if we would give ourselves to this one, all the other, all into place. And so, Father, help us to look at these tribal gods, these false deities in our lives, and to mock them. And that we would make your Son, who is the image of the invisible God, as Paul says in Colossians, that we would make him our God. And our only God, exclusive. That we would look to Him for all of our significance, for all of our satisfaction, for all of our security, for all of our meaning, for all of our identity, for all of our provision, for all of our protection, for all of our refuge, for everything that we need and long for, that He would be the source. 
May you give us the grace to do so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.